Welcome to the Healing Pain Podcast. Your host, Dr. Joe Tata, leads the conversation around the way pain is treated in the U.S. and around the world with experts from the fields of medicine, physical therapy, nutrition, personal development, exercise, psychology, and more. Each week, you can listen to receive free information about ways to treat and reverse chronic persistent pain. Now, here is Dr. Joe Tata. Hey there, welcome to another episode of the Healing Pain Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Joe Tata. As always, it's great to be here with you. This week, we're talking about the role of lifestyle central sensitization in chronic pain. Our expert guest this week is Dr. Joe Nace. Dr. Nace holds a PhD in rehabilitation science and physiotherapy. He is a professor at the Vrij University in Belgium. He is a physiotherapist at the University Hospital in Brussels, Belgium. He is also the scientific chair of the Pain, Mind, and Movement Special Interest Group of the International Association for the Study of Pain, as well as an expert panel member for the Health Science Division of the Flemish Research Foundation. Joe runs the Pain in Motion International Research Group. His research and clinical interests are patients with chronic pain with a special emphasis on the central nervous system. At the age of 42, he has co-authored more than 200 peer-reviewed publications, attained more than $7 million in grant income, has supervised 30-plus PhD projects, and served more than 240 times as an invited speaker at both national and international meetings with regard to pain. Joe is ranked first in the world among central nervous system sensitization researchers, second in the world among chronic fatigue syndrome researchers, fifth among whiplash injury researchers, and sixth in the world among chronic pain researchers. On today's podcast, you will learn all about central sensitization and the role that it plays in chronic pain, why the pain matrix may be outdated but still useful as the dynamic pain connectome becomes front and center, all about the microglia and the role they play in sustaining pain, the top five lifestyle factors that help alleviate chronic pain, what dry needling, alcohol, manual therapy, and some types of orthopedic surgery and smoking all have in common, as well as the rapidly evolving field of post-cancer pain research and treatment. As you can tell from the bio and the introduction, Dr. Nace is one of the leading experts in the world of physiotherapy and pain research. It's great information whether you are a physiotherapist, a practitioner who treats pain, or you're someone interested in learning the latest with regard to healing chronic pain naturally. Okay, I want to thank Dr. Nace for joining us this week on the podcast, and let's begin. Hey, Joe, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you here today. It's my pleasure, Joe. Uh, I'm looking forward to talking to you about chronic pain and chronic low back pain. You are kind of one of the world's experts in things like central sensitization and fatigue, which are important topics when it comes to chronic pain. But I wanted to start out today's chat with almost like a case study that we can talk about the case and also talk about all the types of lifestyle factors that lead to it. So here's an email that came in from a listener on the podcast. I'd appreciate some wisdom from you about my mother-in-law. She's 80 years old and she has chronic low back pain. Should she do prolotherapy? Should she do PRP? Should she try nutrition? Should she try physical therapy? Is this osteoarthritis that's seen in her MRI scan? She has an appointment with a back surgeon 
but I feel it's too drastic of a measure to do surgery right now. And she sent me her MRI, which the MRI is quite detailed, but it shows severe degeneration at T12 to N1, loss of the disc space, annular bulging with osteophytes throughout her entire lumbar spine, pyramidal narrowing, what else is here? Advanced degenerative changes in the posterior facet joints with loss of some height there. And at the end, it says that she has severe lumbar degeneration with a minor spondylolisthesis and degenerative changes that suggest old reactive discitis. So both you and I know as PTs, this is probably a common MRI scan that we see in many patients with chronic low back pain, not just those who are 80 years old. I guess, where would you start with this type of patient as far as, you know, offering some support and advice? The first main message would be the thing that I always do when I receive this kind of emails, being kind to those people and politely explaining that it's impossible to give them any useful advice through email without ever having seen them in real life. And that brings me to the, the, the next main message that I would give in, in advice to these types of requests is that, that we need to always do a thorough history taking, thorough clinical examination, and uh, thorough examination of the full medical record before we can give any type of advice because radiological diagnosis can be an important element in the assessment and uh, the clinical reasoning process, but they should not be taken as a strict diagnosis that implies that we need to do surgery or need to give them whatever type of treatment. Uh, unfortunately, it's not that simple. And uh, yeah, we need to have a total biopsychosocial assessment of, of the patient and then we can see what the bio part adds to the, the overall uh, suffering from this particular patient. But of course, the tricky thing is to explain this to patients via email without making them angry and without disappointing them, of course. Yeah, because it's frustrating. And of course, most people with chronic low back pain have had back pain for a long time. They've seen lots of different types of practitioners. As you mentioned, an MRI scan is an important part of starting to look into a biological cause for low back pain. What are some potential red flags that this person may need to be aware of as they you know, look for a solution for themselves? Well, the, the good thing about the imaging is that clear red flags can actually be identified. But uh, I understand that the situation in the, in the United States is a bit different and that you do have direct access to physical therapy, which is not the case in Belgium, even though we have a five-year Master of Science degree at an, as an entrance level for our profession, but we don't have direct access. So we can just uh, lay back uh, and just uh, rely on the physician who is referring us the patient. It's obvious that's one of the major benefits of imaging in general, that, that you can easily rule out a number of crucial red flags. But of course, it's not only the, the imaging that's available to identify or exclude possible red flags, but it's an important resource. And it might even be more valuable to do that rather than providing a specific information on what is particularly causing the pain in patients with low back pain. Although I have to say that 
referring back to this particular case, you mentioned that she had severe osteoarthritis at more than three subsequent levels of the spinal cord and that she's rather old and that she's got a higher age. And that combination, that's probably the only subgroup within the spinal osteoarthritis population which appears to be has some connection with a spinal pain. General osteoarthritis of the spine is an, a non-specific finding which has no association whatsoever with back pain or low back pain in particular, but seems true for, for neck pain. But if it's an older patient with three subsequent levels of severe osteoarthritis in the, the spine, then it might be a factor. I'm not saying that it's the reason why they're suffering from pain, because everyone who understands pain just a little bit knows that it is impossible to say that's the reason why they're suffering from pain. It's much more complex than that, but it, at least it has some association in that subgroup of the population with pain severity. Right. And in the, if the older population, where you mentioned there's three levels of osteoarthritis, in the clinical reasoning process, are you starting to think that, well, there's potential there for a fracture or there's potential there for degeneration that's severe enough that it may need a surgical intervention? No, I'm not saying that, that it would need a, a surgical intervention because I'm not saying it's dangerous for fracture either, but the second Option. So when it's severe osteoarthritis, that's important, not just some osteoarthritis, but it should be classified as severe osteoarthritis according to the radiologist. Then it can contribute to the pain experience and then it can be part of an osteoarthritis spine problem. But even in that case, I wouldn't recommend or even consider any of the fancy surgeries that they have for this type of medical problems, I would still go with a conservative approach, a lifestyle approach, educational approach, uh, those kind of things, because, because there's so many other things besides that biological factor that are actually important. But I think it's still important also to recognize in those patients that this can be a factor, that the biological factors can play a role and of course, we cannot do anything about those biological factors in strict sense. You mentioned surgery, but we know that those type of surgeries uh, in general they don't work or there is not enough evidence to support their use at, at the group level. So it's not recommended to actually do something about a specific diagnosis, but we can do a lot of things for those patients to all those sustaining factors to all those cognitive emotional factors that shape the pain experience that they are having and uh, reassurance is a big thing in, in relation to that so i think that that should be the focus of our treatment rather than specific diagnosis but when we are reassuring the patients when we are educating our patients of course we need to be aware of the possible role those biological factors play and in Developing the therapeutic alliance with our patients, it's very crucial that we have that right from the beginning and that we don't pose against the beliefs of our patients, but rather extend and broaden the view of our, the beliefs of our patients. So that's probably the main thing about those biological factors, I would say. Excellent. And you mentioned a couple. It clears the path for the communication and the therapeutic alliance. Yeah, of course, the communication between the, the clinician 
and the patient is often the most important. I, I always like to say that rapport in many ways beats out any kind of methodology that we, we have out there currently in, in a lot of different ways. It, you mentioned lifestyle, and I want to touch on pain education and explain pain and some of the other things. But before we do that, because you, are, you do have a, a pretty vast amount of research out on the topic of central sensitization and what it means for those with chronic pain or chronic low back pain, can you explain what central sensitization is for, for the listeners? Well, central sensitization is a, a natural process. It's a way of protecting the human body from getting more damage, for instance, in the, when, you are, uh, when you have just experienced traffic injury, for instance, traffic accidents, then your central nervous system will increase its awareness, its sensitivity for at least a couple of days to protect you from doing any uh, possibly damaging things or just to keep yourself down for a couple of days to rest a bit more and to allow tissues to heal properly. But after a couple of days, that increased sensitivity of the central nervous system, which can be compared to an alarm system, which is switched on, and that alarm system should switch down again after a couple of days. And if that doesn't happen in a natural way, then this central sensitization thing becomes maladaptive because the alarm system stays active even when there is no reason anymore for the alarm system to be turned on. And then you get all these increased sensitivity symptoms that continue over time and that are really debilitating and you don't only they get a, an increase in pain severity, but also the spreading of pain and, and sensitivity to other stimuli and you get other sensory sensitivity symptoms. Excellent. And then, well, before I go into the lifestyle factors, there's a bit of a, a debate, shall we say, over things like the pain matrix. Is there really a pain matrix? Do we know exactly what's happening in the brain? And is the pain matrix even a current concept or is it outdated at this point in some ways when it comes to, you know, looking at functional MRIs or looking at what's happening in the central nervous system when it comes to the sensitization of pain? Well, I think when you talk to neuroscientists who are totally into the field of fMRI and all those other fancy techniques that we have available to monitor brain activity in response to potentially painful stimuli, for instance, or in, in response to threatening tasks. Then they tell us, well, the pain matrix concept is in fact outdated and it doesn't align with what, how we currently understand uh, pain and chronic pain in particular. And they now talk about pain connectome rather than pain matrix because it's more dynamic than we originally thought it was. And it's also context specific. But in the end, I think the concept of the pain matrix in its more simplistic and older version is still very relevant and probably enough to make people understand much more about the complexity of pain. And of course, for the scientists, it's important to let this, all the science evolve and to get more information and to get improved understanding of how the brain is also contributing to the pain experience. But yeah, it's a bit, probably it was a bit too simplistic to say, to understand that the pain matrix is responsible for all the pain we're experiencing and that it's a fixed set of combination of 
areas within the brain that are communicating with one another and producing pain, although the general idea is still rather valid, but it's a bit more complex and a bit more dynamic and a bit more individually tailored than we originally thought it would be. Yeah, well said. And, you know, it kind of goes back to an image of what's happening in the brain it doesn't necessarily point to a cause, so to speak. In some ways, they're really beautiful, fancy pictures, but it doesn't tell the entire story. Can you just talk a little bit about the pain connectome and what that means? It's a new topic that we haven't explored on the podcast yet. Well, I wouldn't go too much into detail because talking about the pain connectomes is interesting. But again, it's also a bit too simplistic in itself because what we are increasingly interested in is the activity not only in the neurons within the brain, but also in the activity in other lines of cell within our central nervous system, more particularly the brain. And that brings us to the glia within our central nervous system, which far outnumber the neurons, but have always been a little bit understudied because they do not produce as much, or they sometimes even don't produce any electrical, well, they don't communicate using action potentials, to keep it simple. So they don't show up when you use EEG, for instance, to monitor brain activity. And therefore, they have often been understudied. We always talk about the central nervous system, so it's focused on the neurons, on the neural tissue, and we used to think that the glia cells are there just to support the neurons, but we now know that they play a crucial role also in shaping the communication between the neurons. When we talked earlier about the increase in the central nervous system, we know that the glia cells play a crucial role in triggering this or sustaining this increased sensitivity in the communication between the neurons and between the different areas of the brain that communicate together to somehow produce the experience of pain. So that increased understanding that is fastly developing right now is not included in the pain connectome. And that's why I don't want to put too much time and efforts in, in explaining all the details about the new fancy things about the pain connectome because it's even much more complex than that. And talking about the glia broad makes our view much broader in relation to chronic pain. And there are now data from uh, Marco Loggia's lab in Boston in the US and also data from Ivar Kozek, his lab in Sweden, in, in Stockholm, Karolinska Institute. And they found identical things in terms of increased glial activity in several types of uh, chronic pain, including non-specific low back pain, including reticular pain, uh, including fibromyalgia, and I probably missed a few other uh, pathologies. So we have now increasing data from human studies to back up earlier findings uh, done in animals that there is increased glial activity in many patients with chronic pain, and this fits well within to our understanding of central sensitization. Also, because we know that increased glial activity implies that those glia produce neurotropic factors and inflammatory substances that increase the sensitivity of the nearby neurons. So this fits well within our understanding and also explains why it's just a fixed a set of areas within the brain, but it's, it's much more complex. Mm. Excellent. And I'm happy that you kind of fast forwarded us to that conversation about the glia or the microglia. For those who don't know what microglia is, can you explain what type of cell it is 
it's in the nervous system, but it's not nervous tissue, correct? Yeah, that's correct. That's correct. It's in between all those neural tissues and between those neurons. And again, they are far outnumbered the neurons, but I'm not saying they're more important than neurons, but at least they're equally important. They sometimes even tell the neurons what to do and what not to do. But in general, of course, they also have, besides that, besides shaping the communication between the neurons, they also have a role to play as immune cells within the central nervous system. So that's another function. They sometimes are called the immune cells of our brain, of the central nervous system, but that's a bit unfair to other cell lines within the, the immune system, I would say. And also, obviously, they are less uh, mobile because they, they stick within the central nervous system, while uh, pure immune cells, they can go anywhere in our body. So that's the main things I think the audience can learn at this point from glial cells uh, to get a bit of their basic understanding of those cells. Mm, excellent. Before we move on to how lifestyle affects central sensitization and the glial cells, is glial activation, is it something that's just innate that happens in the human? Is it something that only happens in those with chronic pain or is it something that maybe someone genetically has a marker that causes this sequelae to happen in people? We know it's, a, it's not a specific thing to chronic pain patients, that's for sure, because we know that there is increased glial activity, for instance, in patients with multiple sclerosis as well, and probably some other neurological disorders like Alzheimer disease. There are some mentioning of increased glial activity. Also, we know that in severe obesity that you can get increased glial activity. So just to say that it's not a specific observation in the field of chronic pain on its own, but the most astonishing thing of it is that it's probably for all that we know from human studies which have been done right now, it's that it's not just group observation, just because of those studies, those observational studies, they compared patients with specific, non-specific chronic pain diagnosis with those not having pain, so healthy controls. But it's not that it's a group observation, that at the group level, the chronic pain group turned out to have increased glial activity compared to the healthy controls. Of course, that was obvious. But when they looked at the individual level as well, they identified each single individual increased glial activity. Mm. Really astonishing. Also, mentioning that it happens in other illnesses like obesity, uh, multiple sclerosis, and I mentioned a few other neurological disorders as well. It doesn't mean that it's a real non-specific thing because it's also related to the area of the brain. For instance, in fibromyalgia patients who have widespread pain and, and widespread symptoms, and also many other symptoms besides pain, they appear to have increased glial activity all over the brain. I'm not saying in all different areas, but it's spread in different areas of the brain. While in thalamus was one of the few regions where they identified increased glial activity in low back pain patients. So where you have a more localized pain problem as well. So the picture that they see within the brain scan that they use to monitor those glial activity actually somehow matches the, the clinical picture as well. When you match the increased glial activity in those specific brain regions with the functions of those brain regions that we already are aware of. So that's, that's also an important finding. But we have to say that there's much more work to be done in the future, including 
examining what they have done in animals already to see whether glial activity is at the etiology of chronic pain or that it's just a sustaining factor. We don't know for sure. We know from animal work that it can be a triggering factor, that it can be at the basis of the chronic pain problem, but we don't know for sure in humans, of course. And then the next step is to see whether we can manipulate it therapeutically and that we can decrease our activity to a normal level, which makes sense when you look at the scientific literature so far. But again, that's based mostly on animal work. Mm. Excellent. I know it's an interesting area of research that's growing. And like you said, animals first, and then we see if we can apply it to humans. And then we get specific to certain conditions, diseases, diagnoses, to see if we can you know, manipulate it with the various treatments that we have that we use as healthcare practitioners. Talking about those treatments, you know, we've talked about some of the complexity of chronic pain, how complex it can be from a neurobiological level. Talk to us about some of the more lifestyle factors that can start to potentially change sensor sensitization and glial activation in a way that helps people cope and helps people move forward in life? Well, the number one lifestyle factor studied in relation to chronic pain is obviously physical activity and physical inactivity, sedentary behavior. And we know that in general, more physical activity is good for decreasing pain levels and increasing quality of life and also making the the human body of the chronic pain sufferer more healthy. And I think that's not really news. We know that it's, it's been shown all over again in so many studies. So that's the, the number one lifestyle factor, which is not really in debate. Other lifestyle factors are somehow le- less well-known. One, one is well, quite well studied is uh, stress. Stress is an ecological factor, but also a really powerful sustaining factor. And we know that we can do a lot to, to better allow patients to manage their stress because one golden rule there is that there are no real stresses, but it's the interpretation of the situation that creates the stress. And to get this type of understanding across our patients is often a challenge, but it's a lot of fun. And, and, and for instance, for headache patients, it's, it's often a, a crucial part of, of the treatment, also for many other patients. And we as physios are often aware of this and we're able to do this. And, and many physios actually have some skills somewhere out there to help our patients to better manage stress. But when we reflect on how often we use them in clinical practice, it's, it's, it's often not that good. So there's a long way to go, I think, before we, we use our, all our skills that we have available to integrate stress management much better in our daily practice for many patients, not only chronic pain patients, but also many other patients. So stress and physical activity are obviously two important lifestyle factors. When we talk about stress, we go fastly to, for instance, sleep problems. Many, but not all, chronic pain patients also have uh, sleep problems. And again, there's a role to play by a clinical psychologist, but if the clinical psychologist is not readily available for the patient within your team or within primary care that the patient would see both a physio and a clinical psychologist, when that's not possible for the patient for financial reasons or for whatever kind of practical logistic reasons, then I think we as physios can also provide some sleep management to our patients and we're actually running a a large trial where we examine whether physios are able to integrate cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia for the treatment of our uh, chronic uh, spinal pain patients. 
we don't know whether they're able to do so, but at least we're giving it a fair chance. And, and I think uh, when you look at the background that we have within our training, we, we should be able to, to do it. We do have evidence right now from a series of studies all over the planet that physios are able to provide cognitive behavioral therapy in general to patients with chronic low back pain. So why not extending that to cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia? Because clinical psychologists do a lot of good things for chronic pain and many other patients, but sometimes their availability for patients is a struggle. So then physios can also add to that. So then I mentioned uh, stress, sleep, physical activity, those three lifestyle factors. Others are smoking. Smoking habits is probably a well-studied lifestyle factor, which is often overlooked. And also when you typically ask at least our patients whether they are currently smoking or whether they quit smoking or whether they intend to quit smoking or whatever, if they don't want to they don't have any intentions of quitting smoking. We know that it's this kind of a yellow flag for not uh, progressing well within the within the treatment. You know that's, that's kind of an indication that it will be difficult to change their health or lifestyle behavior because if they don't want to quit smoking, why would they increase the level of physical activity? Yeah. So that's another one. And this brings us to food in general, uh, nutrition in general. And that's something that I would like to discuss more in detail with you, Joe, because you know uh, from that area, which is really an exciting area. We're starting to develop research in that area as well, because I think there's much to learn about the interaction between nutrition and dietary habits in relation to pain. This has been studied to some extent in, in osteoarthritis, but not so much in low back pain, for instance, or, or non-specific neck pain or whiplash or fibromyalgia. There's some work in fibromyalgia there, but it's an exciting area. And I know that many physios are really keen to learn more about nutrition also in relation to pain. So that's what we're trying to do ourselves right now, that we're trying to learn more about nutrition and, and pain. And when you mentioned the option of therapeutic targeting of decreasing glial activity and the associated neuroinflammation. Well, then one route is, of course, nutrition as well because of the many anti-inflammatory options you have with changing diets, which is more common practice within the field of cancer and, and post-cancer mm. care, but not so much in the field of pain. So exciting times, I think, for, for physios in general, but anyone who's into pain science. Yeah, they are exciting times. And nutrition is new to physios. I gave a lecture a couple of weeks ago at the National Student Conclave, which is for PT students here in the United States. And I gave a lecture on nutrition. I just spoke about, you know, kind of going in just softly about the Mediterranean diet and what the research says about the Mediterranean diet when it comes to different types of diagnosis. And you mentioned some osteoarthritis, fibromyalgia, metabolic syndrome, obesity, different types of autoimmune diseases because there are so many, but RA is probably the most common one. But you're correct, the one place where we don't have a lot of research as far as nutrition goes is spinal pain. There's a little bit of research that looks at things like cardiovascular disease and how that affects um, spinal health. But there's a little bit of research around how nutrition affects neurotropic factors and anti-inflammatory or pro-inflammatory factors with regard to spinal pain. But it is one area that has not been built out yet in with regard to nutrition. So you're a researcher, maybe you'll 
take on that challenge. I'd love to tackle that with you one day and give you some ideas. But I think it's a, a lot of things we're talking about. One of my mentors is Elizabeth Dean, who is a um, physical therapist. She teaches at the um, University of British Columbia in Canada. And she's done, she did a meta-analysis on the ability for physiotherapists to counsel on lifestyle-related changes that are needed. And her study specifically looked at stress, smoking, nutrition, and of course, exercise. I mean, exercise is, I think, a no-brainer, but some of the other areas are new. But when we start looking at the multifactorial nature of pain and all the things that lead to central sensitization, that lead to poor coping, that lead to activation of microglia, you have to look at all these. And, and I've gotten a little bit of flack around this, actually. People say to me, why do you have a nutritionist on your podcast? Why don't you just focus on PT? Or why do you have a psychologist on? Why don't you just focus on you know, nutrition? And I say, well, if you've ever worked with people with chronic pain and you've, you've talked to them, taken a good history and looked at the things that they're struggling with, these are all the things that they struggle with. So yeah, physical therapy is wonderful. But it's not the, you know, traditional, when I say physical therapy, I mean traditional therapeutic exercise, manual therapy, potentially some modalities here and there. And even in the PT realm, and maybe I should just kind of throw this out here in our conversation, things like explain pain, you know, therapeutic pain, neuroscience interventions have done wonderful things for our profession. But we have peers that kind of just latch on to that as like, you know, the holy grail, why might something like explain pain not be enough when it comes to working with someone with, with chronic pain? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think explain pain has been crucial in also motivating PTs and many other professions to learn more about modern pain neuroscience and pain biology. But it's obviously not good enough. When you look at the effect sizes of only explained pain, they're simply not good enough. But together with other interventions, you get medium to sometimes even large effect sizes. And then you get the large effects. And you won't get those effects and positive results unless you also do explain pain first. So still explain pain to me is, is one of the crucial factors to, to motivate your patients to, to create a therapeutic alliance and to make them invest time and energy in exercise or whatever kind of lifestyle factor which is needed for the patient. So therefore, yeah, it, it shouldn't be overestimated, but it shouldn't be underestimated either. So I think it's the combination, like you mentioned, which is, is crucial to, to to integrate into treatments for patients. Yeah, I think what you, what you said there is that when you combine explained pain with other interventions, then you get moderate to greater effects, But which is, which is fascinating because when you look at traditional CBT, which probably has one of the largest bases of research for chronic pain, even in meta-analysis of CBT, there's relatively small to moderate gains, and most of them are really small. So it really says, okay, we need more than one intervention to help someone. Mm-hmm. True, even though CBT, when provided properly, actually does integrate a number of interventions and typically has these different modules which are combined and you often have a physical activity module, you have a stress management module, you have a cognitive module. So it's often a combination or at least a multimodal treatment or it should be. 
on the other hand, yeah, when when you look at the results, I'm I'm just I'm just thinking out loud now. I'm, I'm not uh, basing this on on real uh, strict science, but when you look at the the large number of trials done like CBT for people with chronic pain, of course, they were done. The therapists were typically psychologists, and, and I'm not picking up on psychologists, but those patients who were keen to to participate in a trial where, where they get psychological treatment, that's of course the subgroup of the chronic pain population. And yeah. that's unlikely to, to be the same subgroup of chronic pain patients that we as physical therapists are actually seeing in clinical practice because the majority of the people who are keen to see a physical therapist for their spinal or whatever kind of chronic pain problem, they are not open-minded to a psychological approach per se. And that's probably one of the biggest values of explained pain, that's that you get the you change the mindset of those patients, you create a much broader understanding about their own pain problem, and then they're open-minded to do also these behavioral type of interventions, which they will still no longer regard as a pure psychological intervention. So just to say that we shouldn't just focus on those results of uh, CBT trials. Yeah, excellent. It's a, it's a great point. And it, you can dive deep into the research and start to pick apart the things that are, you know, potentially problematic with the studies and, and what they mean in real life. So let me throw out things to you like dry needling, massage, orthopedic surgery. What do those things all have in common for people who are looking for pain relief potentially? Well, it's a nice combination. I, I would even add smoking to that list you know? because they all have one thing in, in common that they do something good for the patients in the short term. They, they get clear pain relief. Also, smoking, similar to dry needling, similar to hand-on manual therapy. I was trained as a manual therapist, so I'm allowed to say that. But it's gets some quick pain relief. Get some short-term pain relief from that and that's really evidence-based also smoking even if patients never has smoked in their entire life they can get pain relief initial short-term pain relief from smoking a cigarette but the effect sizes are similar you know that you get from the pain relief from dry needling acupuncture from hands-on manual therapy i'm not saying certainly probably the effect sizes in the beginning regarding pain relief are all larger but in the long term it's all the same they, they, they don't fix any problems they create some dependency to passive treatments although we cannot say that smoking is a, is a treatment of course but you understand what i'm trying to say so all those options that patients have to get some pain relief are short-term solutions but they're not uh, long-term solution on the other uh, it's more it's even more worse than than that they somehow prevent the patients to find a long-term solution and to invest time and energy in lifestyle because there's this short-term solution alcohol can be in that list as well mm. right so obviously there are some things that may help short-term but they're not long-term solutions to mm. help people cope and overcome what they're dealing with of course, I want to make sure we plug your research group so people can go to the URL www.paininmotion.be. So that's paininmotion.be. That's B as in boy, E as in Edward. That's where Joe and his research team work, and they have 
wonderful studies and a bunch of people with PhDs and people still working on their PhD projects can be found there. I know cancer research and pain related to cancer is one thing that you have your eye on. Can you talk about why that's important? I mean, a lot of PTs don't focus on pain and cancer research. Yeah, it's, of course, it's an increasing population, that's for sure. And then the population will only grow because biomedical treatments for cancer are fastly evolving. We also we don't only have surgical and radiotherapy and chemotherapy, but there's also this fast-growing area of immune therapy with the Nobel Prize uh, last month, also awarded to the, the founders of the immune therapy for cancer treatment. So the number of people surviving cancer are obviously spectacularly growing, which is a very good news. But the problem is that those patients, yes, they survive cancer, but they often struggle with debilitating symptoms like chronic pain. Up to 40, 50% of the patients surviving cancer have chronic pain. Similar amount of number have chronic fatigue, sleep problems. You have to be aware that once they get the diagnosis of cancer, this is a real traumatic, stressful experience. And the stress will continue throughout the entire process of cancer treatment, which is often years of cancer treatment, so that their body is under a constant stress. And that's why it's not so surprising to see study results where you see that their natural stress response systems are really exhausted in up to 50% of those patients. So helping them in managing everyday stressors much better is something we can do for them. Also, they typically decrease their level of physical activity during a cancer episode or cancer treatment phase. And so they need to slowly rebuild their physical activity level. Also, one of the major risk factors for getting or developing new cancer is that you already had cancer before. So even though you survived cancer, that's one of the major risk factors for getting cancer again. So it's really important for them to adhere to a healthy lifestyle, also to have real good nutritional habits, uh, because that's a major thing, like you mentioned yourself, in the field of cancer. And all those factors are really things that we can do for our patients and we can provide treatment which is useful for them. And I didn't even mention bone health. Bone health is also a crucial thing because many of the aggressive cancer treatments, they actually decrease bone health spectacularly. And this is invisible, of course, to the patient and also to many clinicians. And again, we as physios are really well trained to do some preventive treatments or interventions that can improve their bone health as well. So there's much we can do as physios for those patients. And uh, it's a really exciting area. Patients are really grateful to physios who provide a good treatment to them. So it's, uh, it's an exciting area, but there's much to do for motivating physios apparently to actually involve in that specific area. of Yeah, I know there are some physios that obviously work in hospitals where cancer care is provided, but the things you're talking about are the long-term prevention things that can help people thrive after they've had a cancer diagnosis and after they're done, you know, with the type of treatments they receive, which, like you mentioned, help them extend their life, but can be damaging to many of the cellular components inside the cell that keep energy producing, that mm-hmm. keep them healthy and vital and help all the different systems in our body. Joe, it's been great chatting with you. I mean, I think your research is key and I think the approach you have is probably rare in our, you know, kind of global 
effort to help people with pain. Just, you know, once again, tell everyone where they can find you and some of the exciting things you're going to be working on, you know, over the next year or so. Well, I guess the audience is mainly concentrated within the U.S. And so getting back to the U.S., uh, I'm checking, well, March 8, 9, and 10, there's the Congress in Denver organized by Ipsy. Uh, so I will be lecturing there together with uh, Dr. Iris, Iris Kopieters from our group. And in the southern part of America, so South America, we, we will be giving a course in Chile the next weekend after the Denver Congress. So 16, 17, the weekend of 16 and 17 March, we will be giving a course on stress and sleep management for physios in Chile. So I guess that's the most proxy things that we will do within the US in the upcoming year. That'll be fun. How's your Spanish? <laughs> My Spanish is uh, <laughs> so good, unfortunately. <laughs> but other courses also also announced on our website. So we have a yeah. list of courses and then they connect, of course, to the websites of the course. Yeah, excellent. Okay, so I want to thank you once again, Joe, for being on the podcast. Of course, you can all find out more information by going to www.paininmotion.be. At the end of every podcast, I ask you to make sure you share this out with your friends and family on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, whatever favorite social media handle you use. And I want to thank all of you for joining me this week. Stay tuned. Hop on to the email list at www.drjotata.com forward slash podcast so I can send you a new podcast training to your email e-box each week. All right. Thank you very much. And we'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Healing Pain Podcast. For more information on this episode and access to links discussed, please visit drjotata.com and click on the podcast tab where you will find the blog post for this and all previous episodes and can sign up for Dr. Joe Tata's email list to receive the latest information on chronic pain. Also, make sure to stay connected on his Facebook page at Dr. Joe Tata.